Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Freeway Phantom is available each week on Wednesdays. To hear each episode ad-free and one week early, check out Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com. You're listening to Freeway Phantom, a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, Black Bar Mitzvah, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Prior to these killings start happening, this freeway fan, you didn't hear a lot of killings of black kids per se in the District of Columbia. Not like that. That one behind the other, behind the other, unresolved. You didn't hear that. So the community was in shock, and it put in more caution. People were scared. I mean, parents were scared, children were scared. They wanted to know what more police could do, what were they doing. All that conversation was coming up. People were keeping an eye on things, anything that may have seemed unusual. Uh, people were more visual, I think, during that time because it was hitting close to home, right in the community. Close, especially over here. I'm Derek Davis. I'm co-owner of Davis Barber Service. I've uh, been here 53 years, right here in the same location. I was actually in high school myself. In 72, I was in 11th grade. So it, it was close in, in that regard because the girl that went to Lou was in the uh, 11th grade too, the girl named Denise. Even though I didn't personally know her, a lot of this, the kids, you know, that came down and get the haircut at the shop, were talking about it and how they were, you know, depressed or saddened about what had happened to her. And then a lot of the customers had talked about it in terms of, uh, you know, the crime going on in the city and uh, how they couldn't catch this person. So it was a sad day for DC, I do know that. But you don't really want to know what somebody was telling me the other day. What'd they say? Lord, I'm Mercy, woo! They were giving me some deep stuff about this phantom stuff, uh-huh. where some people that was close to that person's family may have been tied up into that, and possibility it could have been a police officer involved. Mm-hmm. I said, "Do you want to go on record with that?" Now I don't know how true that is, uh-huh. but 
the way she was laying that out, I said, you need to come on camera and say what you got to say. But they won't talk. They're not yeah. going to tell the police. Mm -hmm. They're not going to tell the camera, the media. They're not going to do it. The homicide detectives termed the cases the little girl cases. This child was uh, laying on the side of the road. I wouldn't go no way. I wouldn't come out my house. Those first five murders should have been a huge warning bell for the police. We just want to know what happened. This person must have saw that they were thinking that maybe it's just one person. And he says, uh-uh, they need to know. This is me. I thought that they would catch him. I thought it was just a matter of time. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Freeway Phantom. On the last episode, we covered the background of the Freeway Phantom murders. Six victims, all young black girls, all of them, snatched off the streets of Washington, D.C. between April 1971 and September 1972. Their bodies were all dumped by the side of the freeway, and we know that all six murders were committed by the same person and never solved. The first victim was 13-year-old Carol Spinks, who went missing on April 25, 1971. In episode one, we heard from Carol's sisters, Carolyn and Evander, as they described the horror of losing their sister. Today, we'll dig into what happened after Carol was found, or at the least, what we know from the official investigation. As you heard last episode, we were able to obtain the official police report. Here's what it said about Carol's known whereabouts leading up to the murder. Sunday, April 25th, 1971, at around 7 p.m., Carol Denise Spinks, female, black, 13 years of age, was sent to the 7-Eleven store located on Wheeler Road and Southern Avenue. She was last seen in the vicinity of Wheeler and Southern Avenue by her mother, at which time she was reprimanded for being out of the house. Her older sister had sent her to the store. Later the same day, she was reported missing by her mother to the 6th District Police. It wouldn't be until almost a week later that Carol Spinks's body was found. Here's another excerpt from the police report. On Saturday, May 1st, 1971, Carol Denise Spinks was found in the grass area of the northbound lane of Route 295 near Suitland Parkway by children playing. The children hailed a traffic division officer who was traveling north on Route 295. Now known as Interstate 295 or the Anacostia Freeway, the road was a major thoroughfare which cut right through the city. As we heard, the police report says some children playing near the highway spotted the body, and then one of them either called or flagged down a police officer. Here's how the report describes Carol's body at the scene. Tennis shoes missing, cold to the touch, rigor evident in the right knee and left arm, dried blood around the nose and mouth, right arm across the chest and left bent under the torso, grass embedded in left leg and thigh, crushed cardboard milk carton pressed against the area of the right eye, laceration to lower lip, several marks on body, throat, knees, and arms. Aside from her missing shoes, Carol was fully clothed. In one handwritten note by a police officer, it was said that her second and third snap-on pants buttons were unfastened. Preliminary testing showed Carol had blood under her fingernails, 
but the amount was too small for any conclusive testing or grouping. No semen was found anywhere on her body. However, the police did find negroid hairs, unlike her own, on her shorts, sweater, panties, and hair barrette. And also on her sweater and underwear, investigators found some mysterious synthetic green fibers. She did have a ligature mark on her, some small crescent-shaped marks on the side of her neck that indicated it could have been somebody who was strangling her. Her nose was bloodied, her lower lip was split open, and she had been sodomized. That's writer Blaine Pardo, who investigated and co-wrote a book on the Freeway Phantom murders. What is really interesting about Carol Spinks that I think is the creepiest factor of hers, despite the gruesomeness of how she died, was that she had been kept alive for at least three days. According to the authorities, you know, she had only been dead for two days. And they actually found that her murderer had fed her, they had given her citrus fruit uh, during that period. So whoever the killer was, it wasn't just a matter of kidnapping the girl, taking her to his place where he was going to do what he was going to do, and, and dumping the body. He kept her for several days as a prisoner. It tells you a lot about the killer because it tells you, you know, he had to have a place where you could do that. He had to have the means of doing it. She didn't have any marks where it looked like she was tied up. So how did he keep her? It really gets you start thinking a little bit about the environment that she had to have or the killer had to have in order to keep her as a hostage. Police also interviewed a number of potential witnesses, including 17-year-old Vanessa Alice Copeland who was near the 7-Eleven the day Carol went missing. Copeland said that between 3.30 and 4 p.m., she saw a man exposing himself in a burned-out building by the store. She also saw Carol walking behind her towards the Maryland state line. But when she looked back a minute later, Carol was gone. Another witness, 12-year-old Cecilia Edith Diggs, says she saw Carol in the 7-Eleven parking lot that day between 6.30 and 7 p.m. with a girl named Deborah Harrison, Diggs was riding passenger in a car going north on Wheeler Road. While sitting at the traffic light on Wheeler and Mississippi, she claims to have seen two men, both black, jump out of a car to grab Carol and put her in the car. Then the car went south on Wheeler. The police then interviewed Deborah Harrison, the 17-year-old reportedly with Carol at the 7-Eleven. Harrison said that she walked with Carol to the store, but left without her. When she was leaving the store, she looked back and noticed that Carol was walking towards a burned-out building near the store. And this, she says, is the last time she saw Carol. But then, Harrison says that the next day, the phone started ringing at her home. And when she picked up the line, she heard a man's voice. Did you know that you could be next? Harrison would say that at the time, she didn't know Carol was missing or who had called her. Lastly, police interviewed Dorothy Wheeler, who'd helped organize a search party for Carol. Wheeler told police she also received threatening phone calls from a male with a deep voice. And then, Wheeler says she started receiving letters at work, one of which said the following. You have daughters, and if you don't want them raped and dropped on the side of the road, you'll keep your nose out of this. The police report says these letters were handed to investigators, but there's no record of the notes themselves. And some believe that the testimony of Wheeler and the other witnesses were not credible. 
You follow a lead until it takes you nowhere. And they got all kinds of leads. I mean, everybody was a suspect. This is retired Metropolitan Police Department Sergeant Romaine Jenkins, who you met in episode one. She investigated the Freeway Phantom murders years after the case went cold. At the time of Carol's murder, she was assigned to work elsewhere. But she remembers hearing about the investigation. Everybody became a suspect because people were calling in tips. And sometimes the information that people phoned in would lead you on a merry ghost chase, you know, so, but you had to follow the lead until you couldn't follow it anymore. And then some of the people eventually admitted that they lied. They never saw the girls being abducted or anything, but they lied. Romaine fully believes that those witness statements for Carol were completely false. And that might explain why investigators made no progress with those leads. Eventually, there was an autopsy. According to the autopsy reports, they collected specimens from pubic hair, vaginal spears, rectal smears, and stomach contents. But remember, this was pre-DNA technology. So at the time, police had no way of making connections through those specimens. And so the police ran out of leads. And thus, Carol's case went cold. But many believe the police could have done more and chose not to. Here again is Evander Spinks, the older sister of Carol Spinks. As a a young teenager, I don't think the police did a good job. I didn't feel as though they actually cared during that time. And as an adult, I know they didn't do a good job. And I know damn well they didn't care. Romaine believes this may have been due to a disconnect between white officers and the black communities in and around D.C. People bring their own prejudices and biases to the job. I read information in the files where some of the detectives, the white ones, said, well, they wore tight clothes, that um, Carol Spinks had on tight clothes. Carol Spinks had on D.C. public school gym shorts. If you know anything about D.C. public school gym shorts, they balloon out. Ain't nothing tight about them shorts. Instead of reviewing the whole case, and and, and that's the number one problem. Most on these task force, they are given assignments to do. Look, I want you to cover the 4900 block of C Street. I want you to cover 14th and U. And you're given assignment and that's what you do. You have no idea what the other 999 pages in this investigation has revealed, okay? But see, I'm not like that. I'm going to read everything. I was taught, if you want to know something, you must read it. There's nothing that you don't know that you can't find out isn't isn't written somewhere. So I read everything. And sad to say, they didn't have a female on the team. Romaine believes there may have been some willful neglect when it came to investigating Carol's murder. And she wasn't the only one. When the first victims went missing, there was a really kind of a muted police response. This is Jim Trainum a retired detective from the Metropolitan Police Department. But also during that time, there just wasn't the attention that was being paid, especially when these girls haven't been found yet. You know, of just a young black girl run away or she probably had a relative's house, you know, that sort of thing. There wasn't the full court press that you would often see with a John JonBenet Ramsey or something along that line, you know, to be honest. 
that's unfortunately has been a fact of life for God knows hundreds of years, but even today. Jim started reviewing the case when he launched an initiative called the Violent Crime Case Review Project. Our goal was to go back and look at old homicide cases to see if we could take advantage of any of the new technology that was coming out, such as DNA. And as I was doing so, I was I was pulling these case files up and looking at them. I kept hearing about this one case that was kind of a legend in DC back in the 70s, and that was referred to as the Freeway Phantom case. So one of my first goals was to see what I could find on that case, what evidence was available, and could we take advantage of especially DNA technology today. Jim says he quickly realized that the original investigators did a subpar job of maintaining documents and preserving the evidence. When we first started looking at the Freeway Phantom case, the most frustrating thing was that just about all of the files were gone. We just didn't really have anything. And so we were you know, trying to dig up whatever we could through newspaper accounts and things like that. The other frustrating thing is as we were going through uh, the evidence and all, we were finding out that the evidence was also missing, uh, not only in D.C., but also in P.G. County. And in fact, the P.G. County detectives who had done their own independent uh, re-examination of some of the cases had only found evidence in one, and that was evidence that had been kept at the medical examiner's office. When the medical examiner back then would do a sexual assault kit on a body, they would take the swabs and they would smear them on a slide, look at the slide, and see whether or not there was any sperm visible. And if it was, they would send the kit over to the FBI or to whatever lab they were using at the time, but they kept the slide. And so in one case, they actually found the slide, they sent it in for testing, hoping that it had enough on there to extract a suspect profile. However, at that time, DNA testing wasn't as advanced as it is now. And unfortunately, they used up all of the sample and they were not able to get a usable profile. And so, any hope of finding Carol's killer through DNA was officially lost. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Thank you. 
used to be. It was only 0.2 miles away. Oh, 0.2, yeah. yeah. It was probably right at the corner. Right at the corner. I was curious to see the neighborhood where Carol Spinks lived. Last summer, I found where the Spinks house used to be, and I brought along my producers, Jamie and Trevor. Reservations of when my child walked down the street today. I wouldn't either. I would absolutely send my child with a tired squirrel. The complex where the Spinks family lived was torn down decades ago. Today, the neighborhood is densely populated, yet quiet. Single-family houses, duplexes, and row homes with narrow, tidy lawns out front. There's a mix of old and newer buildings. When the weather is nice, people still sit outside of their homes and watch the activity on the streets. The Congress Heights neighborhood is still overwhelmingly black. But like so many urban neighborhoods in the 21st century, there's surely been some gentrification since the 1970s. Back then, this was a working-class, tight-knit black community. Tell us what you remember about that particular time, Derek. Oh, I thought it was more family-oriented. Yeah. This is Derek Davis, who's run a barbershop in the neighborhood for decades. You heard from him at the very top of this episode. Also sitting down with us is his friend, Reverend Anthony Motley. They called us Chocolate City. Chocolate City. Chocolate City. The bump. Funkadelic. I mean, we had it going... Black leadership, black superintendent, black police chief, black city council, black mayor. We had a lot of pride in the day, back in the day. We, we were from D.C., you know. It wasn't a, a knock on D.C. It was, you from D.C., man, you must be, you know, you must be on the ball. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of bustling businesses. We had, in, in the total Ward 8, I think we probably had about maybe five movie theaters yep. that we no longer have even one. That's right. We used to have a roller skating ring, things kids could do. We had a bowling, Boys we club. Had a bowling, bowling alley. Right. Remember? Mm-hmm. Boys club, girls club. We had all these type of activities. Sit-down restaurants. Sit-down restaurants. Yeah, we had all those things. Restaurants. Mm-hmm. It was really community-oriented. I mean, people were friendlier, they helped out. Didn't seem like a lot of anger like sometimes I see today. I see a lot of anger or frustration or stuff like that. It was just more more community, definitely. The community felt safe. People could keep their doors open. Yes. Your child could go to the store. Right. By herself. Mm -hmm. We used to say, everybody come in when the street lights come right. go, come on, right? Yep, yep. But then don't the go kids, off the block. Don't come off the block. <laughs> you know, yeah. But there wasn't nobody, nobody surveilling you. Mm-hmm. And then the adults had more say. The adults had more control. Uh, where if Reverend Motley saw my son or daughter out there, he said, I'm going to talk to your daddy or I'm going to talk to your mama or whatever, that kid would listen or straighten up. The day you get cursed out, you might get shot or killed if you approach somebody's kid. So we had more family, more structure back in the, in the early 70s. Did you think of this as a, as a safe place for families and, and children at that time? Oh yeah. You know, this, this was, this was a, a family oriented. My mother and father, they were right up the street. Like Derek said, you know, you looked out for each other. In the black community, 
we always say, nothing goes on that somebody didn't see. Here's Romaine Jenkins again. There's always, you have a certain portion of the neighborhood that hang out. Some of the older guys who'd like to drink liquor, they would sit outside 365 days a year, but they're there. So if something happened, they would see it. Then you had the older people like my, my mother and her posse. They would sit in their window and they saw everything that went down. So if you were around the corner acting up, your mother got a call or your grandmother said, she's around there showing off, oh yes. And when you got home, you got it. But they, they looked out for each other. You felt safe, you know, you felt safe in your neighborhood. Nobody was gonna bother you. This is why it's strange that supposedly no credible witnesses actually saw what happened to Carol. And it's exactly why when she went missing, the neighborhood was in full gear to find her. The community was kind of upset at the very beginning because there were lots of people out looking for Carol Spinks because it was not like her not to come back home. She, was, she should have been headed home and she was seen headed home in the direction of her house. They had lots of search parties, people looking, but to no avail. I mean, I was born in 1970 in L.A. This sounds very much like it was here. There was always somebody out. There was, an, you know, somebody's uncle in a, in a tank top drinking a 40 and yes. somebody's auntie down the street sitting on their front porch fanning themselves with their church fans. And I keep wondering as I read about these cases, how did nobody see anything? Because whoever did the cases fit right into the community never raised any suspicion at all. And that's how he was able to do what he did. Nobody would, would question if they saw him talking to a little girl or anything. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't question it. That's, that's my personal feeling on it, you know. Like you said, there's always somebody out. While many in the community felt the police didn't protect them and their neighbors as well as they could, officers on the force in the district have a very different perspective. We're very protective in our neighborhoods, even though we know we hurt each other. We know about the guy in the neighborhood that's, that's a weirdo. You know, we know about these things in our families even. But let something happen to them, oh, you know. We need to be real, and that's the only way we can heal. My name is Rita McCoy. I'm a retired DC homicide detective. I was on the Metropolitan Police Department, Washington, DC. I'm a Washingtonian. Um, I'm presently single. Don't even want to talk about all them husbands I had, but I had a rack of husbands, uh, four to be exact, and three were police officers. Rita says that folks in the community tend to know more than they're willing to tell. And for a police officer, that's tricky to navigate. We had people all the time that knew, family members, people that knew, and would not, I ain't no snitch. Snitches get stitches and all that foolishness. This is your neighborhood, you know? We had to start giving away money to get people. And I'm telling you, the, the, the talk, what do you want? You know, and that's the hard part about us. We hate the police, but yet the police come to our neighborhoods more than anywhere else. So what are you going to do? You got to find a, you know, that, that, that area, you know, where you work with the police or whatever to get what you want so you can have a safety. But Rita says there just wasn't enough trust between black neighborhoods and white police officers. When I was a child, I remember the police being called in the community. You know, and it was all black and the cops were white. 
they were white, and they would just physically like assault the two guys that had been fighting or whatever, and sometimes didn't lock up anybody, just beat them up and get back in the car and leave. People take advantage of their authority. I saw uh, a lot of prejudice and racism on this department. I saw prejudice, I say it was because it was black people. And then racism, I saw from the white officers. And a lot of them did not grow up in this area. They're from all over the place, from West Virginia, Southern Virginia, whatever they, you know, chew tobacco, you know, the things that we not accustomed to in our community. But then I will say that some of them, when they saw that you were good, real police, they changed with you. But, you know, and it's like us too, when we're around all white people and, you know, we're initially uncomfortable if you not didn't weren't raised around them until you find that they are like you. Comments like this suggest that somebody in the community likely knew something about Carol, but wouldn't come forward to tell the police. And with no leads, it seemed like the story was over. But then, less than three months later, in July of 1971, yet another girl went missing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Darlenia Denise Johnson was 16 years old. She grew up in a large family with five brothers and five sisters. Darlenia was petite, about 5 feet 2 inches and 110 pounds. She lived in the same neighborhood as Carol Spinks. Their homes were only three blocks apart. Darlenia had a boyfriend and a job at the local rec center, a half mile or so from her apartment. Most days, she'd walk to and from work, and that was her plan on the morning of July 8, 1971. In the stack of boxes at Detective Romaine Jenkins' house, we found a police report detailing statements given by Darlenia's mother, Helen McNeil. She gave this account to police about the day that Darlenia went missing. On Thursday, July 8th, 1971, I had to be at D.C. General Hospital at 8 o'clock in the morning. Before I left, I looked in and saw Darlenia asleep in her room. I told my son Nick to be sure that he got her up to go to work at the Oxen Hill Recreation Center. I came home from the clinic at 12 noon and she had gone. That night, I didn't look for her to come home. 
On Friday, I expected her in about 5 o'clock p.m. I got home from the store about 6.10 p.m. and asked the kids if Darlenia had been home, and they said they hadn't seen her. I sent the kids around in the next court, and they asked the people if they had seen Darlenia, and they said no. Around about 10 or 10.30 p.m. on Friday, I called the precinct, and they sent two police officers around. I told them everything, and they took down all the information. The next day, the police came back and got a picture of her. The first thing Monday morning, I called Miss Anchor at the Oxen Hill Playground. She said Darlenia was supposed to go on the camping trip, but that she didn't show. Then Miss Anchor says, Do you know about a black car that picks her up in the evening? She said that this black car picked up Darlenia and another girl on Wednesday. She said that the other girl said Darlenia acted like she knew the fella pretty well. The other girl insisted that they let her out of the car, and she didn't know where they went after that. After I talked to Miss Anchor, I went across the hall and talked to Miss Allen. I told Miss Allen that I had called the recreation center and that Miss Anchor had told me about Darlenia getting in the black car. Her daughter, Sylvia Allen, told me that a fella called Alfred drove the black car, and he hangs around Alabama Avenue. It seemed like Helen was on to something, but this promising lead about a guy named Alfred in a black car led nowhere. We know that at some point the police did question Alfred. They even gave him sodium pentothal, the so-called truth serum. But he didn't crack, and so they moved on. For the rest of that first week, Helen was more or less on her own, calling around, asking people in the neighborhood if they'd seen Darlinia. She called police stations and morgues in D.C. and in Prince George's County. Some kids said they found Darlinia's body in the nearby Oxen Hill High-Rise apartment complex. But that was also a dead end. The police reports show that something horrifying happened next. McNeil started to receive unsettling phone calls. According to McNeil, one afternoon she answered the phone and a man spoke. I killed your daughter. Was this a message from the killer or was it just a prank call? We don't know. Of course, there was no caller ID in 1971 and the record suggests that the police didn't take those phone calls seriously. They had very few follow-up questions to McNeil's story, and they never bring it up again in the police reports. Meanwhile, there were rumors floating around the neighborhood about a dead body left near the side of the 295 freeway. And on July 19th, her body was officially found. One man who found the body was Curtis Vincent, who worked for the D.C. Department of Highways and Traffic. On July 21st, 1971, he gave this statement to police. On Friday, July 16th, 1971, I was on duty and was at the highway garage at 2nd and Bryant Streets Northeast. I was working with Bill Farrell. We were looking at the lawnmower shop there, which is supervised by Mr. Roy Tyler, and we were chatting with him. Uh, Mr. Roy Tyler asked us if we'd been out around Firth Sterling and Route 295 lately. We asked why, and Roy said that there was a body of a dead lady out there, and he described the location to us. He told us that he'd notified the police, but the body was still out there. If I remember correctly, he told us that the body had been out there about a week. On Monday, July 19th, 1971, I was working with Bill, and about 1 p.m. or so, we got to talking about what Roy had said about the body. And we decided to go to the location he described and see if we could locate the body. 
On 295, about 100 yards south of Firth Sterling, on the north side of 295, I guess about 10 feet from the embankment, we found the body. I got the impression from the dress that the body was that of a female. The body was lying on the stomach, with the head down the embankment and the feet up toward Route 295. As far as I could tell, the body was clothed, and I definitely remember that she was wearing blue shorts. Other than that, I recall a blouse. I do not remember any other clothing. In the end, it was his co-worker Bill who had a connection at the Metropolitan Police Department. Bill called his friend, a police sergeant named Charles Baden. And only then, after the body had been outside for over a week, did the police finally recover it. The sad part about this is that there was actually motorists that drove by on the super busy highway on July 12th, seven days prior to when her body was actually recovered and reported there's a body on the side of the road. Multiple times people called in saying that before she was finally removed days later. So if the police had actually found her body, it may have not been that decomposed five days prior. This is author Victoria Hester, who we heard from last episode. She and her father, Blaine, have written extensively on the Freeway Phantom case. We actually saw the autopsy photos of this, and all of them are very disturbing. These are young girls, but hers was very disturbing just because she almost looked mummified. It's July in Washington, D.C. She's laying out exposed. You know, temperatures are all always in the 80s, 90 degrees, you know, It's just, it was terrible. It was just horrible. We found transcripts of the 911 calls reporting Darlinia's body. This call came in at 6.50 a.m. on July 12th, a full week before she was picked up. Seems we got an unconscious individual. Oh, shoot, this time in the morning? I hope everybody has their breakfast. That's Firth Sterling and 295? At the intersection? No, it was over an embankment or something. He's laying over on the side. For Sterling and 295? Yeah. Oh, I'll bet it's just an unconscious, uh, or just a man down. 40 minutes later at 7.30 a.m., police received a second call about the body. May I help you? Yeah, uh, I broke down on Route 295 right opposite Boiling Field Photo Center this morning. Yes, sir. Uh, and there's a dead woman. I think it's a woman. It could be a man lying in the bushes. It's northbound on 295, right opposite the photo center at Boiling Field. Okay. Is it a pretty obvious thing? No, it's in the bushes. You you couldn't see it from the road. Okay, sir. We'll send somebody out to find it. As Blaine tells us, police followed up on these first few reports about the body, but they couldn't have looked very hard. Police did drive by... You know, they did a slow drive-by and looked and didn't see the body, but people kept saying they're out there. And it was a real embarrassment, I think, for law enforcement. And the body was found 15 feet from where Carol Spink's body had been found. So, you know, at the time, that was the, the link that really tied these two together. That was perhaps the most shocking detail. Darlenia was found only 15 feet from where Carol Spinks had been found. But still, police didn't officially connect the two murders. 
We did, however, find one police report where an officer interviewed a suspect in Darlinia's murder named Alfred Henry Holmes. The officer asked Holmes if he also knew about Carol Spinks, to which he answered no. But other than this question, there's little to suggest that the police department considered them connected. Meanwhile, investigators were still trying to piece together what had actually happened to Darlinia. There's lots of stories of meeting up with a boyfriend or going to stay somewhere else, but in a time before cell phones and ways to contact your kid when they're off doing whatever they're doing, it's hard to tell what happened. There's not a whole lot of information about her specifically just because her body was so far decomposed. I think Darlenia went to meet the killer because she, she's the one who was decomposed and, yeah. and we have nothing on her case. Nothing, per se. But at this point, when this was written, she, she was still missing. Right. She, right. This is Romaine Jenkins. We're sitting in her living room going through boxes of evidence and discussing Darlenia Denise Johnson. Romaine was especially frustrated by this murder. The police department was truly incompetent. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's face it. She leaves home on July the 8th. The remains are found, I think, July the 12th. The guy who worked for Department of D.C. Highways and Traffic, he calls the police. When his co-workers pick him up, he shows them the body. They call the police. And if you look at the radio runs, transcript of the radio runs, every scout car that was dispatched came back in. 10-8, nothing found. Well, you're not going to see a body if you don't stop the car. If you're going 65 miles an hour down 295 trying to keep up with traffic, you're not going to look. So that was incompetence on their part, total incompetence. Because it might have been something, some evidence that we missed because we, we did not have a cause of death on her, you know? So Darlinia's case was a dead end. But then, just a few weeks later, the killer would strike again. On July 27th, a 10-year-old girl named Brenda Crockett went missing. And later that night, Brenda called home and talked to her stepdad. Next time on Freeway Phantom. When I got there, I guess there was a crowd starting to come out. Arriving on a scene, I was directed to where this child was uh, laying on the side of the road. She was the child of God. She loved church. She would go in the refrigerator and eat raw bacon. But, you know, the pigs were better back then. <laughs> Asked her again, tell the man to come to the phone. I heard someone walk in heaven. She said really low. I'll see you, and someone just cut the phone. So the killer had kind of shifted, at least from the first case. He's not spending as much time with the victims. He's killing them and now just dumping them. Whoever grabbed these young ladies, grabbed them right in their own neighborhood. Freeway Phantom is a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. Our host is Celeste Hidley. The show is written by Trevor Young, Jamie Albright, and Celeste Hidley. Executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio include Matt Frederick and Alex Williams with supervising producer Trevor Young. 
Executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV include Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay, with producers Jamie Albright and Tracy Kaplan. Executive producers on behalf of Black Bar Mitzvah include myself, Jay Ellis, and Aaron Bergman, with producer Sidney Foos. Lead researcher is Jamie Albright. Artwork by Mr. Soul 216. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and the Nord Group. Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia, as well as Black Bar Mitzvah, have increased the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the Freeway Phantom murders. The previous reward of up to $150,000 offered by the Metropolitan Police Department has been matched. A new total reward of up to $300,000 is now being offered. If you have any information relating to these unsolved crimes, contact the Metropolitan Police Department at area code 202-727-9099. For more information, please visit freeway-phantom.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.